please include the worldwide outreach of issues, etc. in your year-end giving. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. For a year-end tax-deductible donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. Welcome back to Issues, etc. Well, our listeners do have a lot of questions. Uh, several of them are very curious about woman's role in the church, whether it's women's suffrage in a congregational voters' assembly or women occupying the pastoral office, what are pastors to do? How far does their authority go? We're going to be answering these unanswered Bible questions. Joining us to do so, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He's pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be here, Todd. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul Lutheran Church and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, welcome. Thank you, Todd. Pastor Wolf Miller, Judith in Austin, Texas says, The evidence is clear and the proof documented by the Catholic Church. Why do we not honor the Sabbath on Friday sundown to Saturday sundown, according to Nehemiah 13, 19? Well, Judith, you've picked a good place to live, by the way, Austin, Texas. That's really good. I don't know what this means, well-documented by the Catholic Church, but I think it just refers to the idea that Saturday is the Sabbath, and the Jewish way of reckoning the day is from sundown to sunup. And this is not a disputed thing. It's The Sabbath is Saturday, and in the biblical reckoning, it starts when the sun goes down on Friday night, and it ends when the when the sun goes down on, on Saturday night. The question is, in what way does the requirements that the Lord puts forth in the old covenant that he gives to Moses at Mount Sinai, in what way does that govern the church of the New Testament? In other words, is the Sabbath observation appointed by Moses part of the moral law that is given to all people at all times? Is it part of the ceremonial law that the Lord gives to the nation or to the people in the worship of the Old Testament. And it seems like starting with Jesus' instructions about the Sabbath, when he is arguing constantly with the Pharisees about what it means to observe the Sabbath, and then continuing into the New Testament, where we have, for example, St. Paul say in Colossians chapter 2, let no one judge you according to new moons or Sabbaths, or maybe the beautiful passage where John in the island of Patmos in exile talks about being in the word on the Lord's day, talking about Sunday, that very, very early on in the church, the church preferred to worship on the day of the resurrection, the first day of the week. So the day after the Sabbath, the Sabbath plus one. And so we have understood that the Sabbath requirements in the Ten Commandments and in the Old Testament law was part of the Lord's old covenant with his people there and not part of the new covenant. We keep the Sabbath now by giving a day to study and hear and rejoice in the Lord's word. And that's the keeping that happens in the New Testament. 
Again, the, the issue about this that's a clear proof documented by the Catholic Church, I mean, this goes back to the time of the Reformation. This was really one of the beefs that we had at Augsburg, uh, at the Diet there, when we confessed the, the faith before the Emperor Charles V. With these Lutheran princes gathered, they're saying that here's the deal in Article 28, that the Roman Catholics are talking about this Sabbath day switching as proof that that's what the authority that the Pope has in the whole bishop of Rome that oversees all of Western Christendom. And then, of course, the claim is of all of Christendom all over the whole world. So in, in Article 28, I mean, we're talking very clearly that the Holy Scriptures have abrogated the Sabbath and that teach after the revelation of the gospel, all ceremonies of the old may be omitted. But again, like what Pastor Miller said, you see in Acts chapter 20, that's where you're meeting on the first day of the week with the breaking of the bread. But it's that issue that the Roman Catholics are making this claim that they have the authority to overwrite and override what the Ten Commandments say, and that the Pope then has that authority to add extra commandments to the law of God that's outside of the law of God. So they're using this as a proof of the authority and the power that the Bishop of Rome has, and of course we deny that. You cannot take a man-made word and make it more powerful or more authoritative than God's own word. Pastor Wolf Miller Williams says, why does the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod allow the practice of women's suffrage, that is, voting in the voters' assembly, in her congregations, when, until July of 1969, it was considered to be sinful, what spiritual light came on that Luther, Franz Pieper, Walther, etc., knew nothing about? Were the aforementioned simply ignorant? Please enlighten me. Well, I don't know if I want to put myself in the position of calling Luther or Pieper or Walther sinful. I don't know where Luther talks about women in the voters' assembly, and I'm not 100% sure that our position before 1969 was that it was sinful and that it wasn't after. I dug around with a little bit of the historical stuff on the Missouri Synod, but I think, and, and I had this in my list of things to listen to, that Utah did a interview, maybe a three-part interview on women's suffrage and the history of it in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. I know I, I want to listen to that. But just looking over the argument, the question is this. The scriptures speak plainly about the authority of women in the church in both St. Paul to the Corinthians and also to Timothy, where he says that a woman should not preach or teach or have authority over a man, that they should be silent in the church. And the question is, does the right of the franchise violate that command or, or not? I think it was probably easy for the Missouri Synod when women weren't voting politically in the United States to really not ask the question. I mean, it wasn't really a, a question. When the women's suffrage movement in the political realm happens, now we have to revisit those texts. And it seems like the the conversation, uh, this is, I mean, long before we were around, the conversation was saying that no, the act of voting in the congregation or at a synodical level is not an act of authority that would violate those prohibitions. So I think that's the argument. That argument is either right or wrong, but I don't think that that argument is saying that Pieper and Walther were sinful or something like that. In other words, I think the question is a little bit more rhetorically loaded than probably the conversation was when it was happening. I mean, we should point out that Luther, if he would have said, you know, does a woman have a right to vote in a voters' assembly? Luther, his first objection probably would have been, what are you guys doing having voters' assemblies? The word of God decides matters. 
That's right. So there is a matter of freedom in how we govern our lives together. And it's been one of the marks of the Lutheran church is that there's a lot of different structures on how to govern our life together. And voters assembly is great. It's one of the advantages of being in the United States, but that itself is not mandated by the word of God. Some things are chosen and voted on in the church. It seems like the first election for pastor when they were choosing a replacement for Judas was a matter of of voting. So there, it's right that we vote on certain things, but we can't mandate a certain polity in the church and pull that straight from the scriptures. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. William has a somewhat related question about the Lutheran confessions and what a pastor can and can't do. Please include the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. in your year-end giving. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org or by giving us a call, 618-223-8385. For a year-end tax-deductible donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our latest book, The Wittenberg Trail, Paths to Lutheranism, and a new recording of 22 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. Thanks for listening, and thanks for your support at the end of 2022. I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at lcms.org worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's lcms.org slash worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Grace, faith, scripture, and Christ alone. You're listening to Issues Etc. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Do you want your neighbors and community to see what you're celebrating this Christmas season? Why not display an outdoor nativity in front of your home or church? It's a great way to show others what Christmas is all about, the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Check out the Outdoor Nativity Store at OutdoorNativityStore.com. Durable, affordable, and American-made nativities. OutdoorNativityStore.com. OutdoorNativityStore.com. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, William in Ohio has a question that's somewhat related to the previous question. He asks about Article 14 of the Augsburg Confession that says, in short, that no one should teach or administer the sacraments unless rightly called. He says, does AC 14 mean that only the pastor can teach and not lay people? 
Yeah, so when we have the Augsburg Confession, again, we're, we're going before Charles V, the emperor of the so-called Holy Roman Empire. And we as Lutherans, the Lutheran princes are gathered there saying, this is what we teach, believe, and confess. This is what we're doing. We're not doing anything new. And so the issue at hand there was not about lay ministry or the so-called lay ministry that we have here in the United States, you know, what we've seen here in the LCMS in the past. This is not what we're talking about. So we need to be clear about the historical context. The historical context is that we have not innovated anything new. And so when we're talking about the reforms, the things that we have reformed, it's that which was deformed in the Middle Ages. And the issue at hand here, of course, is going to be justification, is that we are justified through faith alone, through the righteousness of Christ alone. It becomes ours as a gift. So this is a received righteousness that it can only be received by faith because it's the promise of God. So when we're talking about that fourth article of the Augsburg Confession, it's followed up immediately with the fifth article about the office of the ministry. And so in that fifth article of AC5, it's to obtain such faith, that justifying faith, God has instituted the office of the ministry. That is, he's provided the gospel and the sacraments. And it's through these means that the Holy Spirit is going to work to bring faith, to give that gift of faith, to open ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. So that public ministry, that we have that office, that preaching office is the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. So we establish that very quickly in the Augsburg Confession in Article 4 about justification, then Article 5 about the ministry. When we get into Article 14, now we're setting down this order, this proper order in the church. And this is going to be contradistinction to what the Anabaptists were doing. Because one of the claims that we had filed against us, if you will, a complaint is that we were just like the Anabaptist. It was totally chaotic, and everybody in his was doing things in his own eyes because he thought it was right in his own sight. And so you had these preachers just popping up everywhere, preachers who were not actually called and ordained. They were not put into the preaching office at all, but instead they were making claims of extra-biblical visions, direct lines to the Holy Spirit. And that's like those Wickow prophets who come to uh, Wittenberg, and they tell Luther all these visions and signs and wonders and stuff that's going on. And Luther says, you know, I don't care if you swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all, if it's not in agreement with the written scripture. It's not of the Holy Spirit. So the issue really at hand here is that you had this chaos going on where people were not in this office. So men were going around doing these things, claiming all kinds of extra biblical visions. And basically what we would label it today is starting a cult. So it was a personality cult and people are following after them. So when we're going before the Emperor Charles V, we're saying, that's not us. We're not the Anabaptists. We're not one of these old heretical groups. We're not one of these new heretical groups. We're just reforming the things that are deformed. And so it is taught among us clearly that nobody should be in this office who is not called and ordained according to the way of the time. So that's why in the Apology, when we address the Roman confutation, and the Roman confutation accepts our confession here on Article 14, and of course what they want to make clear is that we continue with the canonical ordination, and then they will accept it. So if we continue to do it in the same way as the past, it's all good to go. So that's really the context here, and so it's difficult for us to kind of look at it from our perspective now, where we have these things as a so-called lay ministry, things within the Senate that's been around for a while, we understand clearly historically that there was one instituted office. It's this office of the public ministry, the pastoral office, the preaching office. I mean, it's referred to by a lot of names, but it is that public proclaimer the preacher, the one who is proclaiming the gospel and administering the sacraments to the called and gathered saints, that the Holy Spirit is using those uh, means of grace to bring people into the church.
Now, there's another question along these lines, too, kind of asking about the extent of the pastoral authority for you, Pastor Wolf Miller. Dennis says, we recently had an interesting conversation in Bible class regarding the Office of the Keys and the extent of what a pastor can do in exercising this position. We know that the office was first given to the church and the pastor exercised it in place of the congregation, but to what extent we know that the pastor uses this to preach, to administer the sacraments, and to forgive and retain sins of those who fail to repent. Does it also extend to the removal of people from committees in the church? If so, does the pastor have the right to do this himself, or should it be done by the voters' assembly? Thank you for any light you can shed, Pastor Wolf Miller. The authority of the keys is not the authority to take someone on and off a board. Uh, that's a totally different realm. The authority of the keys is given by Jesus to bind unrepentant sinners and to loose repentant sinners from their sins. And this is why Jesus has instituted the church for the daily, uninterrupted, completely free distribution of the forgiveness of sins. That's how we are taught to speak of the church in the large catechism. It's really quite beautiful. So Jesus is breathing on his disciples and gives them the Holy Spirit. And with that, gives them the promise. Whoever sins you bind, they're bound. And whoever sins you loose, they're loosed. It's especially important that we understand that in the binding act, Jesus has made sure that it's not an individual activity. So while a pastor who is a steward of the mysteries of God can determine sometimes that it wouldn't be good for a person to, for example, come to communion. So he'd withhold the Lord's Supper from someone who's unrepentant for a time. If that extends further to removal from the congregation through excommunication, the Lord has given specific instructions in Matthew 18. And it goes first to the individual one-on-one, -on -one, and then a few elders are brought with the person to confront them, and then they're brought before the congregation. So that in the binding key, the Lord has given extra protections. And the reason is because, at least from my discerning these things, is that the Lord really has given the office of the keys for the loosing, for the forgiving, for the setting free. And he doesn't want someone going around like a tyrant, locking people out of the church so that there's these procedures to follow when that's going to be happening in Matthew 18, all the time with the hope of restoration. Now, our church governance with boards and all this sort of stuff is all by human wisdom. There's no divine mandate that a congregation would have a president and a vice president and boards and committees and councils and all of these sorts of things. It's just us sorting out how we should have our life together in an orderly way so that people can be accountable, so that things can be accomplished, so that the Lord's word can be heard and rejoiced in. And there might be some wisdom, for example, from Matthew 18 or from the Office of the Keys that can be applied to the governance of the church. But there certainly would not be a one-to-one -one correspondence. And while I don't know the specifics of the situation described here, it would really be a stretch for a pastor to say that the office of the keys could mean that he could remove someone, for example, from a Christian education board or from a board of elders or something like that. That would be a bit of a stretch. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Wolfmiller and Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. Pastor Wolfmiller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology 
on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including Has American Christianity Failed? And Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Pastors Wolfmiller and Ketchelmeyer are graduates of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ who teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Learn about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Alan in Custard, South Dakota, has a question about the appearance of the Lord to Abraham in Genesis 18 next. Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Muscoota, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Muscoota, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmuscoota.com. Metro East Lutheran High School in Edwardsville, Illinois, is looking for an English teacher with a master's degree for the 2023-24 school year. Edwardsville is 30 minutes from downtown St. Louis. The position would involve teaching upper-level, dual-credit English classes. For more information, send an email to Principal Jay Krause, J-A-Y-K-R-A-U-S-E, at melhs.org, jkrause at melhs.org. College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, offers ACT, SAT, and PSAT test prep, scholarship application classes, college and career counseling, and more. Hi, this is Lori Konsky, president of College Preparation Station. We have helped our students obtain more than $7 million in tuition scholarships in 12 years. Find out more at cpsprep.com. Let us help you create a vision and find your future. The College Preparation Station in Maryville, Illinois, cpsprep.com. A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. Do you need a rest from the world's headlong rush to Christmas? Someplace where you and your family can slow down and prepare for Christ's birth at the church's rather than the world's pace? A midweek evening Advent service is the perfect time for your first visit to a Christ-centered, cross-focused Lutheran church. Learn more on the Find a Church page at issuesetc.org or send an email to talkback at issuesetc.org. America's tradition of liberty depends on having colleges and universities that equip young people for the responsibilities of freedom. At Concordia University Chicago, freedom is a pillar of our education. We prepare our students to live as free, self-governing citizens. I'm Dr. Rachel Ferguson, Director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia Chicago. 
I invite you to visit us. Discover what it means for freedom to become a pillar of your future. Learn more at cuchicago.edu. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller are our guests. After our conversation with them rounds off, we'll be talking with Dr. Scott Yenner, professor of political science at Boise State University, about cancel culture in higher education. He's been canceled twice. He'll tell us the story. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, a question from Allen in Custard, South Dakota. He says, Genesis 18 tells the story of how the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great oak trees of Mamre. What are we to make of this? Did the Lord appear as a man or men to Abraham? Was he incarnate, or were these angels delivering the word of promise to Abraham? Okay, th- this is a great question. I'm glad that we have opportunity to talk about this, because this, this passage here in Genesis chapter 18 teaches us about the pre-incarnate Christ. The second person of the Holy Trinity is always the one who makes God known. So whenever you have Yahweh appearing to one of the patriarchs of old, this is the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is the messenger of the Trinity, the Word of God. So this is the one who is sent by God to appear. And so he appears in the form of a man. This is not the incarnation. That's why we would call this a pre-incarnate sight, a vision, or not a vision, but an appearing, I should say, not a vision, but an appearing. And so here you have the appearing. And so this is how I want you to see this chapter open up. Kind of look at the beginning of this chapter as kind of like a title, kind of summarizing what the point is. It says, and Yahweh appeared to him. So this is going to tell you, that's the title of what's going on in this chapter. This is the second person of the Holy Trinity who has come to speak, the Word of God who's going to speak the Word of God. And so when you're looking at the text, yes, historically there have been many church fathers who have emphasized the three, there were three men that came. Now that bears witness to the Trinity, but I I think that it'd be much better to see this as bearing witness to the Trinity than being the Trinity. Because what we want to see in the text itself is there is a distinction made between Yahweh who is speaking, that's the second person of the Holy Trinity, and the other two men who are angels, who are not God. They are created angelic beings because they go off to Sodom and Gomorrah. So if you follow the text itself, this is how it flows, that Yahweh appeared, and this is how Yahweh appeared. And so when he appeared, Yahweh is now speaking. So you, you see like in verse 10, where Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. So he's talking to Abraham. You drop down to like verse 16, then the men set out from there. So that's the other two. So the other two go on to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they look down towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Then Yahweh said, so now you have Yahweh speaking, and Yahweh saying, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So this is Yahweh speaking to the other two, the other two who are in the form of men. And so he's speaking to them, shall I hide this from Abraham, what I'm about to do? Did He's going to become great and a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's always the promise of the seed, the seed who's going to crush the serpent's head. And so here's Yahweh speaking. This is Yahweh appearing, second person of the Holy Trinity. So like in verse 22, so the men turned from there and they went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before Yahweh. So now he continues to speak with Yahweh. So there's a distinction made between Yahweh and those who had left and went on. And so when you get to uh, chapter 19, 
chapter 19, verse 1, opens up with the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. So that's the two others that went to uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you drop all the way down to chapter 19, verse 24, this is where you see something very, very profound here. And this is going to teach us to make a distinction in the plurality of persons of the Holy Trinity. So in verse 24, it says, Yahweh reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from Yahweh out of heaven. So now you have a distinction here between Yahweh who remains in heaven and Yahweh who is now here on earth appearing to Abraham. So this is the distinction between the Father and the Son. And so you have Yahweh who reigns on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire, from Yahweh out of heaven. And you see, even in the the book of Amos, the prophet Amos is also teaching that same kind of distinction. So in Amos chapter 4, verse 11, you see this where here you have Yahweh speaking and saying, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares Yahweh. So this is Yahweh speaking. Okay, to Amos, uh, through the mouth of the prophet Amos, Yahweh speaking, say, I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. So you see that same distinction that's being made in the plurality of persons. So this is what we want to see in Genesis 18 is a testimony of the Holy Trinity, teaching us to make a distinction in the plurality of persons. But the number three is just kind of bearing witness to the number of three. Pastor Wolfmiller Kevin says, how do we reconcile people rising from the dead after Christ's resurrection? I think he's talking about Matthew's account of the resurrection there. And the verse that states that it is for man once to die and then the judgment. I don't know. And I don't know for a number of reasons. I can maybe explain my own ignorance. And number one is I'm I'm not sure what to do with this text from Matthew where it says that when Jesus died— there was dead people risen in Jerusalem and they walked around the city until Jesus was raised. That's wild. And all I think I can say about that text is that is that the Lord accomplished a very unique miracle at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And that is the resurrection of a number of people around Jerusalem. But that little resurrection has to be understood I don't think we can understand it any other way than, say, the resurrection of Lazarus or the resurrection of the son or the young the young man at Nain, and that is that it was a resuscitation. It was a bringing back to life. Those people who were raised from the dead when Jesus was raised from the dead must have also died. They're not still hanging around. You can't find them living, and they're 2,000 years old or whatever, just like Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead, but he would have had to have gone back to the tomb at some point later on. So that in that way, Jesus still is the first fruits of the resurrection. That is this entrance into the new and eternal life where death has no more authority over us. And all those people who were raised in the Bible were given a little taste of the resurrection, but they also had to, to go back and die. So that mysterious event at the death and resurrection of Jesus that Matthew tells wouldn't really have anything to to say with the truth that we're taught also in Hebrews, it's appointed for man once to die and then to be judged. That's also true of Lazarus. It's true of the man who fell asleep and died and was raised in the ministry of St. Paul and so forth and so on. I suppose they died twice, but this is the idea is that the judgment would still come to them on the last day when the Lord divides the sheep and the goats and those who have believed in Christ and followed after that belief with good works will be brought to the Lord's right hand. 
the eternal life of the righteous and those who have not believed and have done evil will be the goats that'll go to the left. The whole understanding here, I think, is is profoundly put into place by Johann Gerhardt. I mean, Johann Gerhardt's talking about this, and he just draws all this together in a nice just bow. He puts it together in a great package. And, and he's looking through the whole scripture. And so what Gerhardt does is he notes both Enoch and Elijah okay, in the Old Testament. These are men who were taken up, okay, still in their bodies. So that is an example of what believers have this hope in of something better than this life a life to come taken out of this corrupted creation. So there's something very unique with Enoch and Elijah. And of course, when you get to the, the Mount of Transfiguration, we also see Moses there. So there's also tradition that Moses too was also taken up just like Enoch and Elijah did not die because you could not find the grave of Moses. But then of course, he's going to list out these, these understandings of resuscitation. So in the Old Testament, when you have Elijah and Elisha bringing back to life, restoring to life, the son of the widow at Zarephath, that's Elijah, or the son of the Shumanite woman restored by the prophet Elisha, or even what we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, when the man fell into the grave of Elisha and touched the bones and he came back to, to life. That's a resuscitation. And so you have a glimmer of this in the Old Testament that's always pointing towards something more than this life. And so it's always pushing us toward that universal bodily resurrection, but it's not quite there yet. And when you look at the, the New Testament, and now there's something kind of as you see a progress with what Jesus is doing in these healings. I mean, first, Jesus is going to raise the daughter of Jairus by uh, saying, you know, she's not sleeping, she's alive, you know, she's, she's everything's good. And then, of course, when he, he touches the uh, the burial of the widow of Nain's son, when he touches the, the coffin there and he comes back to life, those two weren't buried yet. So you see this progression. Johann Gerhardt just kind of like lays this out. Look at how this progression is here, is, is the church fathers saw this before, that these two were not yet buried. But then when you get to Lazarus, Lazarus is buried. So Lazarus in the tomb for the, the four days, he finally gets raised up by Jesus. And this is all pointing to Jesus is the one who is going to be, as Pastor Wolf Miller said, he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning. He is the source of all life. So that something very unique happens when the saints came out of the tomb at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then, of course, you see this continue on with both the apostles, Peter, and the apostles. Apostle Paul, that they both also restored somebody to life, the resuscitation of somebody, but it, it's not fully the resurrection. But of course, we can't have the resurrection without the resurrection of Christ. So he is the firstborn. He is the source of the bodily resurrection himself. And that's why now you have a different phase where we're waiting for Christ to come again in this universal bodily resurrection. And there's going to be some of us who don't die. So yes, the text says it's appointed once for man to die, and then the judgment. But of course, we have these passages in both 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that talk about us who are still alive when this happens, that we put on immortality with our, our mortal being, our mortal body. They become incorruptible. We have this corruptible body now. So there is something unique for those saints who are still alive at that time when the resurrection of the body happens in an instant. So in the blink of an eye, we all now transfer over to this state of these resurrected bodies. So so you see this whole picture here. We don't want to just look at one text and say, okay, the text says that it's appointed for man to die once, and then look at other texts and say, hey, that's a contradiction. We want to look at the totality of Scripture, how it's always pointing to Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. 
So we have, uh, let's see, Glenna asking a question, Pastor Wolfmiller, is it a sin to be cremated after you pass away? It depends, I think, Glenna. The answer is that the Bible does not forbid cremation, but it does not speak very approvingly of it either. Everyone whose body is burned after they die, their body is burned because of a punishment. It's some sort of wicked. And the normal practice for the Lord's people, both Old Testament and New Testament, is burial. We consider, for example, the burial of Jesus or the burial of Lazarus we were just talking about, or the burial of the prophets. And the care that was reflected in their bodies, for example, Israel asks that his bones be brought back to the promised land from Egypt. And that, the church fathers have all commented, is a confession of his hope in the resurrection. The way that we treat the bodies after they die says a lot about what we believe will happen to those bodies. And so those people who confess the resurrection, especially the Old Testament Jewish people, the New Testament Christians, always treated the body with great respect, knowing that this body will be raised again. Now, I think there's a lot of reasons why people might pursue cremation, cost, or it seems more sterile, or it seems more ecologically friendly, or space, there, there's more space, or s- some other practical reasons. And so we'd say those aren't uh, in, uh, in and of themselves necessarily sinful. When it becomes sinful is when cremation is used to deny the resurrection. And that's how it would be used, for example, in Eastern religion or Eastern thought, or even with secular pagan thought. And that is that my body is just trash. I'm done with it after I die. And so I'm going to do with it what you do with the trash is you, you burn it. And that would be the sin of making a false confession because we're not through with our bodies. The same bodies that are buried are the bodies that will be raised in glory, that our tombs will one day be as empty as the tomb of Jesus. And nothing can stop that, cremation or, or whatever. If you die at sea and you're eaten by the fish or whatever happens to your body will not prevent the resurrection. So the question that we want to ask is, how can we best confess the resurrection? And there's some wisdom in the custom of burial. The church has said, hey, the best way to confess the resurrection is by treating the body with care and planting it like a seed waiting for the last day when it will sprout in glory. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. We've got a question regarding an infallible book with an infallible interpreter next. This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we move farther along in St. Luke with blessings and woes, love of enemies, lives of mercy, of logs and specks, and built on the rock. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. What does anthropology or the science of mankind, the study of mankind, have to do with Christmas? 
Well, it has everything to do with Christmas. As the December issue of The Lutheran Witness points out, to understand what man is and what it means to be man, we don't look to other men, but to Jesus Christ, the man. To subscribe to The Lutheran Witness, visit cph.org witness or visit our website witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. When a 2018 fire nearly destroyed Milwaukee's historic Trinity Evangelical Lutheran Church, we got to work, but continued to give the gifts Christ freely gives to his saints here in Milwaukee as we have since 1847. We are nearly two-thirds of the way to completion on this historic restoration, but we need help to finish this work. Will you join us? Please consider joining us. Visit trinitymilwaukee.org for more information. And as pastor, I can't wait to welcome you home to Trinity. Join Lutherans for Life in Washington, D.C., Thursday, January 19th through Saturday, January 21st, 2023. Go to lutheransforlife.org to learn more about our Why for Life Washington, D.C. Youth Conference. Deadline for registration is December 15th. Lutherans for Life, equipping Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. The shepherds knelt before a child and said, This wondrous light is the same light we saw shining in the fields tonight. This blessed child is surely Christ, the Son of God, they said. How strange the King, our Lord, has but a manger for a bed. A little bit from the Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, the Issues Etc., Book of the Month for December. It's an appropriate Christmas gift for children ages 5 through 9. You can check it out at our website, issuesetc.org. Or call Concordia Publishing House and order Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040, 1-800-325-3040. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, that Lutheran Grinch uh, has a question. He says, popular Roman Catholic priest father Mike Schmitz is quoted as saying that an infallible book without an infallible interpreter is a worthless book. What would be the proper way to respond from a biblical perspective? Well, just the, the obvious answer is that if you have to have an interpreter who can interpret something, th- that chain will never stop. Because then you're going to need an infallible interpreter to be infallibly interpreted by another infallible interpreter. I mean, th- that's the whole history uh, of the church. I mean, we see this, there, there's differences of opinion, there's been different uh, ways to see things, and the church has changed the opinion, they've changed what they've said on things. And so th- the logic itself doesn't even uh, follow that you would have to have an infallible interpreter to interpret the infallible scripture because you still then need an interpreter to interpret that interpreter. I mean, it's just, it's a game that's being played. That's all I can say. You need also an infallible hearer. What good does it do to hear an infallible interpreter if you're a fallible hearer? Because then it can get messed up there. And so the chain also breaks down there as well. The word of God is the holy, perfect God speaking to unholy, sinful creatures. That's what the Lord is doing with the scriptures. And so God be praised that he's put it down for us. He's put his words on the pens of the prophets and the apostles for us to rejoice in. God be praised. And he's done so with such clarity that the necessity of an infallible 
interpreter is taken away. As soon as you talk about the infallible interpreter, you are confessing the obscurity of God's word, the lack of clarity of God's word. And to insult God's word in that way is, I think, unwise as we prepare for the judgment day. And so there's an insult that the Catholic dogma has perpetuated against God and his word, and probably in order to get at the Lutherans, that is a very dangerous proposition. Does it also ignore the fact that God's word is not inert? It's not doesn't sit there until someone, a qualified reader, comes along. Anyone who hears it or reads it is being acted upon by the Holy Spirit himself. Yeah, it's a fine point that God's word is living and active and that the Holy Spirit is working in and with the word to deliver both the rebuke and the comfort that the Lord has for us there, the forgiveness and the wisdom, so that when we have the word of God, we have the Holy Spirit speaking and moving. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the Holy Spirit is active to bear the fruit that the Lord requires and that's another thing. I mean, look, this idea that the scriptures need something, this Roman Catholic resistance to sola scriptura obscures the clarity of God's word. We discussed before the efficacy of God's word, the sufficiency of God's word, and even the authority of God's word. Because if the authority is God's word and the church or the teaching office or the pope or tradition or whatever— The thing that really matters is what comes after the and. And when it comes down to it, while the Catholic Church wants to claim that their authority is the scripture and the church, whatever is before the and doesn't matter. It's just the church. And that is their actual, it's sola popus. It's just the pope. And and what he says is the authority that's there. And so the whole thing is a bit of a game and ought to be distressing for Christians who know that to be a Christian is to hear the voice of Jesus. My sheep hear my voice, and I call them by name. And we want to hear the voice of Jesus, and that's what Jesus gives us in the scriptures. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, this is from Sarah and Stephen, Wisconsin. My husband and I have been praying the prayer of parents for their adult children that God would give them a godly spouse since we found it in the Lutheran Prayer Companion several years ago. In that prayer, we pray in part, quote, And because in your divine word it is charged and committed to parents to provide for them particularly in this respect and to take wives for their sons and husbands and for their daughters, end quote. Our question is, where is this found in Holy Scripture? Well, first of all, we don't want to just look for a proof text. And I've never been big on proof text at all. So we want to be clear this is not a proof text that we've got to scour through the Scriptures and find a proof text. We need to understand that... Marriage itself is instituted by God. And so God desires that a man and a woman be joined together in holy matrimony. I mean, we see this from the very beginning when Adam was alone and it was not good. So without a wife, there cannot be life. I mean, so this is God's institution itself. So we hold that it's as sacred and holy. We understand that uh, in that union between a man and a woman, God gives the gift of children, which is a good thing. So marriage is a good thing. Children, as the fruit of this union, this is a good thing. And so therefore, you want the next generation to also join in these gifts that are from God, joining together in marriage, in that union of man and woman, and then reproducing and having more children. I mean, so this is how it's all instituted by God, all set in place since the beginning. 
Now, of course, God gives us this gift. I mean, you, you see this like in Psalm 127, that unless uh, Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And in particular, when you're talking about a house here, I mean, notice it's he gives to his beloved sleep. Okay, and right away, as you're talking about sleep in the house, you talk about behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh. The fruit of the womb is a reward, and it, and you get the image of it. It's like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is a man who fills his quiver with them. So we know that children are a gift from God, and we know that this is how God, of course, puts everything into place, and it continues to be a gift. We also know that after the fall into sin, what we have is that marriage becomes a remedy for sin. And so being married itself is something that parents would want for their children so their children do not fall into the temptation of sexual sins. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians pretty extensively concerning these sexual matters. Is it good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman? Okay, it's because of this temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And so you have the, the this whole understanding of it becoming like a remedy to this sexual sin itself. Paul talks about, of course, the, this issue of the sexual sin in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he says, uh, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, or nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you know what? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. And so this is where Paul will then go on to say, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So we know that we live in this life that's uh, filled with sin. I mean, we're all sinful by nature. Uh, we have the sinful flesh itself. We have the world and we have the devil who are trying to pervert everything that's good from God. And, and so when God gives us this good gift of marriage as parents, we know that this is a good gift that we would likewise want our own children to have. The whole book of Proverbs, I mean, the, the, this wisdom literature is about listening to your father and your mother and this instruction that they give to you about the proper wisdom that you gain from a father and a mother with God's word, which of course is contrary to what the world gives, the, the foolishness of the world itself. And this is how we want to see this, is this totality of God's gift of marriage, the fact that we live in a fallen world that's falling apart and sexual immorality, it becomes more and more prideful each and every year. And this is a good thing for parents to, to want their children to receive this good gift from God. Here's a question for you, Pastor Wolf Miller, from Dr. M.J. Smith. A fellow Lutheran has been asking me about the golden chain, Romans 8, 29 through 30, that is the Sedes Doctrinae for Calvinists on predestination. I've encouraged him to view it in context, not that this is a really an unanswered question, but how are we to read this passage correctly? And it reads as follows, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. This is a beautiful passage, and it's it's right to look at it in context, but it stands on its own as a as a wonderful truth. The, the Calvinist always wants to, they want to lean first on this divine act of predestination or election, and especially they understand 
that because not all are saved, it must be that not all are predestined. In other words, because only some reach glory, then only some must be justified, and that means only some must be called, and that means only some must be predestined and elect. And so they work backwards from the fact of perdition to the limiting of predestination. At least I I think that's how the logic works for them. Where this breaks down for the Calvinists is between predestination and calling. And there's a line in Calvin's Institutes. It says something like this. He says, when we hear Jesus talk about calling, and he's commenting on the words of Jesus, many are called, few are chosen. We have to talk about two different kinds of calling. So Calvin has to have the external call of the gospel that goes out to all people, and then the different, unique, internal call of the Holy Spirit, which is only for the elect. And so to make this chain hold together, the Calvinist interpreter has to understand the call to be the limited internal call worked only by the Holy Spirit as separate from the external call of the gospel. And even though this was not a dispute in the Lutheran churches, the Lutherans took it up in the formula of Concord, especially Article 11, talking about election, and talked about the danger of it. If you start to build two kinds of calls, the internal call of the Holy Spirit and the external call of the gospel, and you say that the call that matters for salvation is the internal call of the Holy Spirit, then what you're saying is that the external call of the gospel doesn't matter. In fact, the Lutherans go so far as to say, you make the preaching of the gospel into a lie. So we come back to that beautiful text in Romans and we say, look, the main thing here is the call, the preaching, the external delivery of the promise of the gospel. And that's what informs both the invisible and unseen mystery of predestination, as well as the invisible and unseen mystery of justification, faith in the heart. How do I know that I'm predestined? How do I know that I'm justified? Because I hear the gospel preached, and I know that that gospel is for me. So this is our way of understanding this text, and it's so full of comfort and glory, and it really explains what Paul goes on to see because he he wrestles through the doctrine of election in the next three chapters. But the main thing there is going to be, well, how can you believe unless you've heard? And how can you hear unless you're preached to? And how can you preach unless you're sent? How beautiful the feet of them who bring good news. So the faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So the main thing is that call of the gospel, that preaching. And when we hear that, we know that the Lord has predestined us for glory and eternal life before his face. Pastor Brian Wolf Miller is pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolf Miller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, thank you. Thank you. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is pastor of Mount Calvary Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, thanks. Oh, you're most welcome. Dr. Scott Yenner joins us on the other side of the break. He has written a recent column for First Things titled Anatomy of a Cancellation. We'll discuss cancel culture, the sexual revolution, and higher education. Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection is the perfect Christmas gift for children, grandchildren, and godchildren ages 5 through 9. This new resource is published by Concordia Publishing House. Their phone number, 1-800-325-3040. 
You can also purchase Archbook Treasury Christmas Collection at issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for December, Archbook's Treasury Christmas Collection, 1-800-325-3040 or issuesetc.org. It's the days before Christmas and the list is so long of whom to buy what for, so I'll help you along. Ad Crucem has gifts for all budgets and tastes. Our service is quick for shoppers in haste. Pop over to the website adcrucem.com for gifts focused on Christ where it's always belonged. Reminders of his work for saints in this world and his promises eternal yet to be fulfilled. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? The Simply Classical curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. Simplyclassical.com. We're supported by listeners like you. You're listening to Issues Etc. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu.